Hello, Kate Jones here, and this is the Love to Teach podcast. I am a history teacher, a middle leader, author, blogger, and now I am entering into the world of educational podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Love to Teach podcast. Now today's episode is a little bit unusual and I do apologise, you may hear some background noise. I'm actually in a coffee shop, it's not my usual location for recording, but I usually record um, this podcast in the United Arab Emirates, in Abu Dhabi, in my history office in school. But I finished school last week, actually. Um, Everyone in the United Arab Emirates, or most schools, finished. And I'm back in the UK. And today, I'm meeting up with a friend in Birmingham. We're going to the Christmas markets. But he's also a teacher, and he's actually teaching right now. And I've been meaning to record an episode of the podcast. I've just been so busy seeing all my friends and family. But I've got some downtime now with a coffee. I thought, why not? And the focus of this episode today will be about my new book. And that's simply because since the last time I recorded an episode, which was actually about creating a reading culture in schools, uh, my book has been published. It was published at the end of November. I'm really pleased with how well it's doing. My book, for anyone who's not aware, is called Retrieval Practice, Research and Resources for Every Classroom. And this is published with John Cat. It's my second book. So what I thought I'd do today is read an extract from the book. Thought that would be a little bit different. Might be like a little mini audio book because I do actually love listening to audio books. I have Audible on my phone. And just to give you a little idea, a little flavour of what what the book is about. Obviously, it's about retrieval practice, but some people have been quite surprised. First of all, they thought, how could you write a book about retrieval practice? And it's not just the research, it's not just resources, it's this idea of combining the theory and the practice from a teacher perspective. So I will read that to you. I actually do have a copy of my book. I don't usually carry it around with me. I am getting a few <laughs> odd looks here in the coffee shop, but I'll persevere and I will read that extract for you. So when I decided to read an extract from my new book, I thought that might actually be quite difficult because it is very visual. There's lots of diagrams and infographics and there's visual examples of the classroom resources and activities. But I have managed to find some sections from the introduction that I can read today. And I don't want to read too much, obviously, don't want to give anything away or too much away should I say but here's a little overview of what the the chapters cover so chapter one asks what does the research tell us and that's what does the research tell us about retrieval practice specifically chapter two retrieval practice in the classroom what does it look like in my classroom and there's examples from lots of other teachers too I really enjoyed writing that chapter Chapter three is retrieval practice and the science of learning. So how we can combine retrieval practice with space practice and dual coding. And then chapter four focuses on revision strategies. Now obviously retrieval practice is a really important revision strategy, but it's only one aspect of revision. There's lots more other things to think about and consider, which I also explore in this chapter two. 
Okay then, so now I will read a section from the introduction of Retrieval Practice, Research and Resources for Every Classroom. The Retrieval Process. I was taking part in a quiz one evening with a group of friends and a question came up that annoyed me. I knew that I did actually know the answer, but I just couldn't recall it at that precise moment in time. Typical. I'm sure it's a moment that many people can relate to. I started explaining to my friends that the information was there inside my long-term memory, but I just couldn't retrieve it. One of my friends rightly asked, what good is information and knowledge if it's in your memory, but you can't find it or use it? Exactly. We need to be able to access that information easily when we require it. As educators, our role isn't to simply transfer information to students' long-term memory. We also need to support them so that they can retrieve that information when required. Dr. Pooja K. Agarwal, cognitive scientist and co-author of a book I highly recommend, Powerful Teaching, Unleash the Science of Learning, often explains that we shouldn't just focus on getting information into students' minds, but instead ask, how can we get that information out of their mind? That is where retrieval practice becomes so crucial to learning. Paul A. Kirshner, John Sweller and Richard E. Clarke are widely quoted for defining learning as a change in long-term memory. If nothing has changed, nothing has been learned. This is a very good way of looking at learning. Not education as a whole, but specifically learning, stressing the importance of long-term memory. This has been the game changer for myself and many other teachers. Long-term memory wasn't part of my vocabulary, understanding or lesson planning when I first began teaching, but it is now. We are constantly retrieving information from memory on a daily basis. Sometimes we are aware of it and other times we aren't. When a parent asks a child what did they do or learn in school that day, the child has to retrieve the information from memory to answer. Whilst parents who ask their children about their day show genuine parental interest, it can also be a useful retrieval strategy. But are parents aware of this? If so, perhaps they could ask more often or think more carefully about the questions they do ask. Perhaps they could even challenge their children by asking them to retrieve what they remember from yesterday, last week and even further back. Retrieval practice has transformed classrooms around the world, with leaders and teachers implementing it into their curriculum planning, lessons and home learning. However, there is still a lot of work to be done in embedding retrieval strategies and ensuring all teachers, students and parents recognise the value of this approach. I know many schools that have fully embraced retrieval practice and it has become part of their language of learning. I am very fortunate to currently work at a school that models exactly this, but I am also aware of other schools that haven't recognised retrieval practice at all, or schools where only a select few teachers have done so, isolated in their classroom. Even worse are the schools and leaders who have enforced retrieval practice as simply another tick box activity only to be completed during lesson observations or inspections. How would you describe your school and its approach to retrieval practice? This is something to reflect and consider as a teacher or leader. The science of learning is another phrase being used in education circles a lot 
but it's important that educators, students and parents have a good understanding of what the science of learning actually refers to. Bradley Bush and Edward Watson are authors of the insightful book described by John Hattie as his book of the decade, The Science of Learning, 77 Studies That Every Teacher Needs to Know, which provides an excellent definition of the science of learning. It is the quest to help our students learn more effectively and efficiently. I couldn't agree more. What could be more important in our role as educators, other than the safety and welfare of our children, to support learning than enlightening ourselves on the science of learning. Learning how to learn has not previously received the profile and importance that it deserves, but it has certainly begun to recently. There has been a movement in recent years that has involved more teachers connecting with educational research and becoming more evidence informed. Educational research has never been easier to access, especially with the Chartered College of Teaching, which provides online access to journals and their magazine impact that members receive, the Edu Twitter network online tweeting articles and blogs, and the increase of events taking place for teachers organised by teachers. There's also a wealth of educational books available too, driven by research written by both teachers and academics. I explore the reasons for the renewed interest in educational research in more depth in the first chapter of this book. However, there are still barriers when it comes to teacher engagement with research. I believe the main obstacles are time to engage, embed and reflect, academic jargon and terminology, access to research journals can still prove difficult or costly although this is improving as mentioned, a disconnect between educational research and teachers, there are inconsistent findings in the field of research linked to education, lack of trust after neuromyths previously published as educational research and now debunked, learning styles being the classic example, probably the most obvious and pressing factor can be time. Teachers are busy, we have planning and marking to do, parents' evening, pastoral responsibilities, organising school trips and much, much more. In addition to balancing our own personal lives too, how do we find the time to engage with this research? Many teachers are choosing to do so in their own time because it is interesting, exciting and can be incredibly liberating. But schools do have a responsibility to support teachers who are choosing to become research and evidence informed. It is also something that, as a profession, we should do together. Engaging with educational research is so important. Time should be dedicated to this at a whole school, department and individual level. A senior leader at my school recently delivered a presentation about how schools should actively and financially support teachers when it comes to professional learning. The learning scientists are a team of academic researchers and cognitive psychological scientists that are interested in research on education. Their vision is to make scientific research on learning more accessible to students, teachers and parents. They offered this considered advice in their brilliant book, Understanding How We Learn, a visual guide. If evidence supports the effectiveness of a strategy, then we should by all means adopt it, but continue to be flexible as the science evolves. 
This is the approach I have taken in regards to educational research, adopting and applying it, but also accepting that we are not there yet. There are many developments yet to be made and much progress to come, I am sure. For this extract, I have found a quieter place to record, as you can probably tell. And this is also another extract from the introduction under the heading resources, because as I've already stated, the book combines educational research and then what it looks like in the classroom through resources, questioning, activities and tasks. So I hope you find this interesting too. All of the resources and ideas in this book are designed to support retrieval practice. The main aspect to remember is that this means no notes, textbooks or support is permitted as it prevents retrieval from taking place. Although I will later explore the benefits of some retrieval support. Many of the tasks in this book could be easily adapted to be used alongside notes and textbooks as part of the encoding process, which is important but it is not retrieval practice. The key to retrieval practice is the retrieval from memory. It's as simple as that. Like all things in education, retrieval practice can be carried out and delivered effectively or badly. That is why it is so important that we continually learn and review our practice. When it comes to implementing research and applying this in the classroom, we need to think about meaningful learning. What does meaningful teaching and learning look like? This is a very challenging question, but also necessary for us to reflect on when planning the sequence of lessons or designing a curriculum. Jeffrey Karpicki has written about this, and I thought he demonstrated that researchers and teachers are not as disconnected as some might assume. Karpicki wrote in a paper focusing on how retrieval promotes meaningful learning, that meaningful learning is about producing organised, coherent and integrated mental models that allow people to make inferences and apply their knowledge. I am confident all educators would agree with this observation. Although teachers may wish to develop this further based on their own interpretations and experiences, and generally that would be widely accepted as an accurate description of meaningful learning. We also need to take this question further by asking what does meaningful look like meaningful sorry, learning look like in our subjects or phases that we teach? This was a point I considered when it came to retrieval task design. I have included many real life examples of resources used in my classroom, but as I now only specialise in teaching history, I have asked teachers across other subjects who have used these resources in their subject to share their examples in this book. Many thanks to the teachers that have kindly agreed to do so. I have also included visuals to once again help you, the reader and teacher, consider how the tasks could be used in your classroom with your learners. During the early years of my career, I spent many evenings printing, cutting, gluing and laminating. I did enjoy creating innovative resources, but they were time consuming and added negatively to my workload and well-being. On reflection, I also think many of my resources were overcomplicated and at times distracted from learning. 
Knowledge of cognitive load has helped me to consider this aspect too. Now I combine educational research with my professional experience and insight to create resources that are low effort, high impact. I believe this to be of paramount importance when creating or using resources in the classroom. The low effort does not refer to students' effort, but rather the time a teacher puts into creating and planning, as they are tasks or activities that are simple and easy to adapt and use. In my first teaching role, I was observed by my deputy head teacher, and the feedback he gave me all those years ago has stayed with me and impacted my practice ever since. He observed a religious education lesson where the class was studying key events and ceremonies in different religions at the time. That particular lesson was about Christian weddings, and I did a lot of unnecessary preparation. As I wasn't teaching the period before, I used that time to organise and get ready, and it took me about 55 minutes just to set up the classroom and resources. I remember decorating the classroom with a wedding theme. There were name cards on each of the desks for students, as would be at a wedding reception for guests, despite the fact students were sitting in their regular seats anyway. I also sprinkled some confetti on tables and hung up white wedding decorations around the room. The extra touches added nothing to the learning. Many of the decorations weren't even explicitly linked to Christianity, but have evolved as wedding traditions <laughs> this only resulted in extra tidying up for me at the end of the lesson this serves as an example of high effort low impact the feedback my deputy head teacher gave me was very positive despite the obvious elements of gimmickry and novelty but he did comment on the amount of effort and attention that had gone into that single lesson and how it would not be possible to do that for every lesson. It was simply unsustainable, unnecessary and unrealistic. And he was right. I was very grateful for that constructive feedback. The high impact refers to the impact on learning, both inside and outside of the classroom, which is absolutely essential. When teachers aren't spending hours planning and designing classroom activities, that frees up our precious time, thus allowing us to develop subject knowledge and professional learning and even to enjoy our evenings and weekends more. How lovely. I do enjoy lesson planning and being creative with resources, but I finally feel I have struck the balance with low effort, high impact. An excellent resource is not a substitute or replacement for poor subject knowledge, but a resource can certainly complement subject knowledge to create a meaningful and impactful learning environment. The resources in this book are intended to be combined with the teacher's own subject knowledge and adapted for teachers' classrooms. Retrieval practice can be fun, enjoyable and engaging without gimmickry, but with a clear focus on learning. This book contains a wide range of tasks to support retrieval practice with explanations, links to research and classroom context provided. This book is aimed at teachers in the classroom, across primary and secondary, in addition to middle and senior leaders. Thank you for listening to another extract from my book. <laughs> it must be quite difficult for authors to record 
audiobooks um, to not make any mistakes and errors. It must be a very long process, but one that's also very enjoyable too. And before I wrap up this podcast, I also wanted to give a shout out to TM Icons. So I've mentioned TM Icons before. It's um, set up by my friend Tom Rogers. He's the director, but there's lots of leaders within this. TM Icons are Teach Me events, which are subject specific. So the first event was TM History Icons. And at the moment, they are looking for speakers for TM History Icons, people who are already signed up to go to the event. And it doesn't matter whether you're uh, an NQT, a head of history, a senior leader, all presenters are welcome and invited to submit their presentation and idea. doesn't matter if you've never presented before either. That's a great part about these events, is listening to a wide range of speakers. And also, I know it's very exciting, we have TMPE icons. There's a, a geography event, a maths event, science. Uh, they're just, just doing really well. It's taking off. And also for the TM English event, um, the keynote speakers have been announced. They're wonderful. Mary Myatt, Jennifer Webb and Dr. Arlene Holmes Henderson. So that's really exciting. So I will keep you updated in the new year. I hope you enjoyed the extracts from my book. And uh, if you do have any feedback about my book, then please do tweet me at 87history, get in touch with me via my website or you can even respond on the Anchor podcast page. Once again, I would like to say a big thank you for listening to the Love to Teach podcast. I'm hoping to record one more episode before the end of this year. I know I haven't got long left, but I'm sure I can fit it in. And the next episode I'd like to record will be about books that I have read in 2019 that I would highly recommend, some of my favourite educational books. I won't actually be talking about my own book in that episode, but other books. And I also want to talk about some books that I'm looking forward to reading next year. Now, they haven't been published yet and I haven't read them, but I've got a good feeling about them and I'm looking forward to them and I'll explain why. And... Uh, In a few days' time, I fly to New York, which I'm very excited about. And then I will be back in sunny Abu Dhabi for New Year. So who knows where I'll be recording the next episode of the Love to Teach podcast. Could be a coffee shop in New York. It could be back in Abu Dhabi. But wherever you are, I hope you have a lovely winter break and a Merry Christmas. Nadolit Lawen, Abloy the Nerida, Ahuval. Bye.